before we we read uh, i'd like to pray for us god we thank you that um that you are not like us that you are uh, so transcendent and beyond us and that you are a mighty fortress and a bulwark that never fails that we can run to you and cling to you uh, knowing that you are not only a strong and mighty god but you are a good god and you are a god of compassion and loving kindness um, to those whom you have made your children um, through the work of your very own child jesus christ your son so i pray god that you would um, just present yourself in, in full display through your word this evening in this uh, wondrous psalm and may our hearts be attentive um, and, and meek and, and and lowly as we receive your word i pray this in jesus name amen okay <clears throat> psalm 8 let's read the read this psalm first together O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, I'm not sure if um, this might be beyond uh, a lot of uh, your guys' time, or, or maybe not. Um, but in, in a certain movie, Indiana Jones, uh, in the last crusade, uh, this phenomenal epic movie, it's, uh, I'm not sure if many of you guys know, but our, our wedding recessional after Laura and I were married, pronounced husband and wife, uh, we left the, the altar, walked down the aisle on our way out to, uh, the Indiana Jones theme, um. It was a da 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 da. da. It, it was, uh, it was such an empowering moment, you know. So, but in, in any case, um, <clears throat> so in, I don't know if you guys might remember, but in the last one of the last scenes is before they're going to uh, to get the Holy Grail. Grail. Um, Indy has to uh, Harrison Ford has to pass through this this tunnel, right where. You know, these blades were uh, kind of flying out and just lopping people's heads off. And 
in, in the key from uh, his father's diary or his little notebook was that the key to get through this passage was this little mantra, I suppose, only the penitent man shall pass. Only the penitent man. So he's walking through uh, this tunnel. There's spider web, you know, spider webs everywhere, and it's dark. And, and and then he sees there's dead bodies lying around and skeletons from previous men who, who have failed to make it through. He's repeating to himself, "Only the penitent man shall pass. Only the penitent man. What is the penitent? Oh, the, the penitent man is humble before God. He, he the penitent man kneels before God. So he dives down and kneels." Just in time, as the, the 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 huge rays swing by where his head just was, so so he makes it through. Only the penitent man shall pass. The penitent, humble man who kneels before God. Now we understand through Scripture that the only way to God is God's way. It is not a broad road but it is rather a narrow path. It's not a pompous and high and mighty highway, but in God's economy, the way down is the way up. It's from the Valley of Vision. To be low is to be high. The contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. The repenting soul is the victorious soul. The way to God is only through God's way. That is humble faith in his son, Jesus Christ. This is repenting of your own sins, as well as your own works, forsaking the wisdom of the world to embrace the foolishness of this gospel of a crucified Savior. This is forsaking one's inflated self-reliance, forsaking that for weakness, to depend fully upon the merits of another. This is God's way, demonstrating his majesty, his splendor, his glory through weakness. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, I've titled this message actually, majesty and, and, and weakness. I was thinking lowliness, but it's not only lowliness, but it is rather uh, weakness. And here in this psalm, in Psalm 8, we're going to see how Psalm 8 demonstrates how God's majesty is revealed through weakness, which should compel us to worship him with humility and gratefulness. And here we're going to see two implications concerning the majesty of God. We're going to see first God's majesty in triumphing through the weak. This is verses 1 and 2. And secondly, God's majesty in ruling through the weak. So that's God's majesty in triumphing through the weak. And secondly, God's majesty in ruling through the weak. So first, God's majesty in triumphing through the weak. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. So this is a Psalm of David. This is David writing. And he opens up with, O Lord, our Lord. 
You have to understand that these are two different words in the original Hebrew. If you have um, the NAS, I believe the ESV does it too, where they capitalize the, the first Lord, which is, this is uh, God's memorial name, Yahweh. This is the hallowed tetragrammaton. This is the name that God revealed to Moses. This is the great I am. When he says, oh Lord, this is Lord as in the great I am, the I am that I am. The great I am, the one with no beginning and no end. This is the pre-existent, the self-existent sustainer of all, who himself is sustained by no thing, who himself is sustained by no one. So David has opened the psalm, directing us to the great incomprehensible essence of Almighty God, the great I am, O Lord, O Yahweh, the I am that I am, our Lord. So that second Lord, the second word for Lord used here is Adonai, sovereign. This is the sovereignly presiding Lord, the sovereign master, the ruler, the king. O Lord, our Lord. Now, not only so, but David describes him as not just Adonai, but our Adonai. He is our master. He is our king. I mean, what a wonder that we would be able to call him Yahweh. This Yahweh, this great I am, this Adonai as our Adonai, our king. O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our sovereign king, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic, majestic, how great is your name in all the earth. How wide, there's this vastness to that word. So how great, how wide, how vast, how mighty, how magnificent is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. That word for above is, it can be translated over or upon or about. So the majesty of God is exalted and elevated to the highest possible degree. Uh, one commentator named Barnes writes, regarded, it is the majesty of God is regarded as the highest object in the universe blazing forth above all worlds so god has unfurled his majesty over the heavens his splendor is put on display it's spread across the canvas of the heavens in this panorama of majesty god's majesty is magnificent and it is resplendent and the fundamental purpose of creation is to display the glory of God. You have the heavens, the earth, all that is on the earth, all that we experience from the stunning sunsets to beautiful beaches to majestic mountain peaks, canyons, waterfalls, rivers, and streams, wondrous creatures and animals, flowering plants and towering trees, and delightful music, and the sweetness of taste and delicious food, the, the serenity of a calm, brisk morning, 
or a warm summer night under the stars. It all exists, not for its own glory, and not for solely for our enjoyment, but for the glory of God. Because why? Because his name is majestic in all the earth. For all of creation is his. All of creation is God's. And every square inch piece of his creation is stamped, made through him and for him. Colossians 1.16. Now let's see how David continues in verse 2. From the mouth of infants in nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the animal, uh, to, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So, what's going on here? You have this glorious picture of of God's glory, God's majesty, and all of a sudden you have the mouth of infants in nursing babies. Babies? Where do these infants and nursing babies come from? So here David shows that God chooses to defeat his enemies through weakness, through the weakest of the weak. I mean, what's weaker than this picture of infants and nursing babies? Does he say, from the mouth of lions and powerful beasts, you have established strength because of your adversaries? Or from the mouth of conquering kings and from the, from the mouths of David's mighty men? Those are like his David's navy seals. From, these, from, from them, God, you have established strength but rather it is from the mouth of infants, infants that need to be nursed and fed, infants that need diapers changed and heads and necks supported with gentle hands when they're held. It is from these that God you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the animal enemy and the revengeful cease. It is through these babies that God's enemies are suppressed and shut down. You see, God uses the weakest of the weak to defeat his enemies. God uses weakness to defeat the strong. And you have to think for a minute, who's writing this psalm? This is the pen of David. God uses the weak to defeat the strong. David is familiar with this. I mean, who else? David, as he stood in the shadow of the towering Goliath. You come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. God uses weakness to defeat the strong. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the base things of the world, the things that are not, the things that are nothing, like five 
simple, smooth stones gathered from a nearby brook. He uses nothing, the weak things, to nullify the things that are. All right, that's 1 Corinthians 1. So I ask, friends, have we misplaced our confidence thinking that we can do great things for God, that we can do great things for the church in anchoring our confidence in our abilities or in our discipline or in our commitments or our ministry involvements, in our faithfulness? I mean, the gospel is an invitation for broken and wretched sinners who come to God with empty hands, weak and destitute, empty hands, where the only confidence that gives us a place to stand is the rock of Jesus Christ. We bring nothing good to the table. We are nobodies. Because God could very much use drooling, babbling babies to accomplish his purposes. So we ought to consider ourselves knowing that none of us are irreplaceable. But that doesn't mean that we're insignificant to him as we move on to the second implication, that is God's majesty in ruling through the weak. So we've seen God's majesty in triumphing through the weak. Now God's majesty in ruling through the weak. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right, when I consider your heavens. So the sun, let's, let's uh, look at a little cosmology for a second. The sun, 93 million miles away, is, in terms of volume, is 1.3 million Earths. Yet at the same time, the sun is relatively small compared to other stars. The sun is categorized as a G2 dwarf star, whereas one star, for instance, uh, Canis, Canis Majoris, Majoris, I don't know, <laughs> Majoris, sorry, um, is 9.3 billion suns. That's seven quadrillion Earths. So that's seven uh, 0000000000000 Earths. So, uh, to illustrate that, that's as if Earth is one grain of sand, one grain of sand, and Canis Majoris is almost all the sand in all the oceans, on every beach, and in every desert in all the world. And then you think for a second that there are 70,000 million, million, million stars in just the observable universe. And what does David say here? That these are all but the work of his fingers. So here, Scripture employs this anthropomorphic representation, God's 
fingers. Right? God is spirit. He's he doesn't have fingers. This is using this uh, in a in an illustrative sense. So you have this picture of God's fingers shaping the stars. So scripture is using this this illustration, taking these enormous cosmic giants and showing their proper scale, showing their proper perspective that these celestial giants are all but minuscule in the shadow of their creator. See, the point here is not that the sun, the moon, and the stars are magnificent. The point here is that God is magnificent. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. And just to think that this star breather, this great star breather who fashioned the heavens with his fingers would stoop so far down that he would lower himself to such minuteness to take thoughts of and to care for man, small, finite, mortal, transitory man. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? So when you behold all of God's creation and all that he could take thought of, all that he could have on his mind, all that he can look at and consider, the heavens, the galaxies, the stars. Now what is man? What is man? And, and now consider, aside from just aesthetic grandeur and greatness, consider moral quality. Have the heavens ever rebelled against God? Have the heavens, the sun, the moon, the, the stars, Canis Majoris, have, have the heavens ever transgressed his law? Have the galaxies sinned against their creator? Are the heavens constantly dug in aid of hostility and opposition to God? No, but rather the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19. But what about man? What about man? What about finite mortal man? I mean, furthermore, when you consider the heavens, the heavens not only declare the glory of God, but the heavens testify on God's behalf against those who have lifted up their heel against their creator. As Romans 1 tells us, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, being understood through the creation, so that these men are without excuse. What is man that you take thought of him? What is man that you remember him, that you care for him? In light of this, in, in light of Isaiah, <laughs> we are but dust on the scales, as Isaiah writes. We are but just dust on the scales beside the weight of the glory and majesty of the eternal creator God. Our life is but a breath of vapor, like the grass that sprouts and withers. We are here today and gone tomorrow, while even the sun, which is itself finite, will continue to burn for millennia long after we're gone. So what is man? We are just a flea, a gnat on the canvas of eternity, like a minuscule feather that is adrift on the vast Pacific Ocean. And when everything points to our nothingness before the majesty of the great creator God who presides over the entire universe, both observable and unobservable, even when it doesn't make sense that the transcendent God would give us any attention or pay us any heed. Yet what a wonder it is that not only does he take thought of you, but he cares for you. As we see all through Psalms, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit, Psalm 34. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and wall. For he has not despised the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, Psalm 22. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear, fear no evil. For what? For God is with me. God is. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, God is not distant. But God is near. God is near. He is providing, ordaining, protecting. He is a sun and shield.
May we never succumb to the lie that God is distant or that he is apathetic towards you or that God does not care about what you are going through in your life right now. He is the God who sees. He is the God who knows. He knows your frame and he sees your sins. He is familiar with all our habits. He understands our weaknesses. He is aware of all our failures are constant failures. And yet, even still, despite it all, because of Jesus Christ, he cares. He cares for you. He takes thoughts of you. He remembers you. His grace and affection toward you is abundant. His love for you overflows as deep as the ocean and wider still. He has taken you in as his child, like an abandoned, orphaned infant. He has taken you in and bundled you up in his gentle compassion. Indeed, when I consider the heavens, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. This is simply incredible. And not only does God take thought of us, not only does he care for us, but God also sets mankind over his creation to rule and to have dominion. Verse 5, 5 and 6. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, speaking of man. You made him a little lower than God, and, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So you have, this, this, really, this really harkens back to, to Genesis. This Genesis, just after Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Adam, you have made him a little lower than God. This is a place of tremendous honor. We are created beings, not divine beings as God, yet he made us to bear his image, bearing the image of the divine creator, that we may be like him. And in Genesis one twenty six. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is the creation mandate that God gave to man, to Adam, to Eve, to rule over this creation over every creeping thing that creeps on, on the earth, as Genesis 1 says. Over, continuing on here in verse 7 in Psalm 8, all the sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. Verse 8, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. That is what we were made for upon this earth to rule as God's stewards over this creation. 
ruling and having dominion over this created order. But I ask you, is this true now? Is that true? Is man ruling? Are we having dominion over this world? Do we have control over the created order? As one author has written, do we have dominion over creation or does creation have dominion over us? You think of the wildfires that we've experienced. You think of this virus, this tiny virus with a particle size on the order of nanometers. This tiny virus can upend our entire world. And you think of earthquakes and hurricanes and typhoons, tsunamis. You think of cancer. You think of paralysis, blindness. You think of miscarriages and stillborn babies. You think of the death that is all around us and the suffering and the anguish, knowing that this was not what this world was meant to be like. That this world is a great and and severe aberration from the original design that God intended for it. You see a world that is ravaged by sin and man who is ravaged by sin, who does not have dominion over this world. But I assure you, there is coming a day when man will once again have dominion where a man with a capital M, a son of man, a Daniel chapter nine, son of man, a king, Daniel chapter seven, a king will preside upon his throne over a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away. And all men in him will reign with him once again over this creation. So who is Psalm 8 talking about? Who is this man who will reestablish what was lost in this great aberration? This great rift in what this world was meant to be and what man's place upon this world was meant to be like. Who is Psalmate talking about? And as we wrap up, I want to look at the New Testament and have us find out. So if you could, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. And let's see, who is Psalm 8 talking about? Hebrews chapter 2, reading from verse 6 to verse 10. <clears throat> the author of Hebrews writes, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? 
You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. See, the author of Hebrews is, is we're in line with that line of thinking. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So who is Psalm 8 ultimately talking about? Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That was the incarnation. Where Jesus came as a man. Taking on flesh to dwell among us. And having become a man, he would then die the death of a man. As the author of Hebrews writes here, he's crowned, verse 9, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It's the cross. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, taking on flesh. This is Philippians 2, the great condescension, Jesus Christ humbling himself to the point of becoming a man, to the point of dying, subjugated to the death, the cr a criminal's shameful death on a cross. And as Jesus hung there, this was the epitome of weakness in the world's eyes. To those at Calvary on that day, it would have seemed that Jesus' opponents had won. It would have seen that the forces of Satan had prevailed mightily over this weak, this gasping man being crucified, struggling to come up for each breath. He's naked, he's taunted, and he's being ridiculed by the crowd. He was mocked and he's spit upon. His body is frail and weak, and the skin of his back has been lacerated to shreds. His blood trickling down his bruised and his beaten face. In man's eyes, this is not strength. This is a humiliating weakness. I mean, there's no coming back from this for this carpenter from Galilee. This man who is cursed 
hanging on a tree with his life slowly ebbing away. Yet in the eyes of God, with his son dying on the cross, this is majesty. This, this is majesty triumphing through weakness. In this shame of crucifixion, in this apparent destruction of the Son of God, you have the glory, the weight, and the majesty of God revealed as the torrents of the Father's wrath surge down and rain down upon him. The Christ is crushed for the iniquities of sinners and of his own will. The sin-bearing Savior lays down his life, breathing his last, victorious. As the author in Hebrew writes later on in this chapter, verse 14 to 15, that through death he, Jesus, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So in Jesus Christ, we behold, in Jesus Christ, here, this is the majesty of God triumphing through weakness. This is the majesty of God ruling through weakness. And through our union with Christ, we come as sinners forgiven by the Lamb of God, by virtue of the Lamb of God. Through our union with him, we share in his victory over our ancient foe. And we will share in his dominion over the soon-to-be-renewed creation. No more death. No more disease. No more broken bodies and broken souls. No more lives ravaged and torn to shreds by sin. No more loss and heartache. No more tears. No more sorrow and anguish. And so may our every breath now, our every breath, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Sun, moon, galaxy, stars, and sinful, finite man. May our every breath and may our every word and our every thought and our every deed, may all of these things testify to the wondrous majesty of the Lord. The Lord, our Lord, this majesty which has been put forth before all the world through weakness, put on full display through Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name 
in all the earth. Let's pray. God, we fall on our faces before such wisdom, such glory, and we confess that your ways are not our ways, for we are so self-absorbed, we are so arrogant, We're, we are so self-willed and entitled. And yet, what is man? What is man that he boasts in the way that he does, that we live in the ways that we do, neglecting God, not making much of God, but making nothing of God? Forgive us, God just for such a sinful perspective and how we conduct our lives. But we are floored by such immense grace. What is man that you take thought of him, that you remember him, that you love him, that you would save him, that you would make him your son? That you would call us your own? So we thank you, God, for such grace, such mercy, such loving kindness that knows no end. May it cause us, may your majesty, the reality of it, the majesty of your glory, the majesty of your grace, the majesty of your mercy, cause us to live appropriately. We thank you, God, for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.